So the question this afternoon for us is, are we for or against? We're talking about God here. Are we for God or against him? Now, of course, the right answer as we sit here in church is obvious. But out there, maybe there'd be more of a debate. Should we be for or against God? And I think many would at least be, well, they'll say neither, indifferent. But only, of course, if this God leaves me alone, doesn't interfere in the way I want to live my life. But that maybe shows there's a related further question we could ask. Not so much are we for or against God, but think of it this way. What do you think? Is God for or against us? Have you ever considered that question? If there is a God, would he be for me or against me? That is, how would a creator, if he's there, want to interact with me? Would this God want to give to me and make my life better? Or would this God, the sneaking suspicion at least, want to restrict my life and make it worse? Even those who don't believe in God still have a view on what that God they don't believe in must be like if he is there. Take an example, Stephen Fry. He stated quite openly that any creator God must be, quote, a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God. Quite clearly, totally selfish. Well, if that's your view of God and his attitude towards us, then obviously you will avoid that God and steer clear if you can. So is the creator God for or against those whom he has created. And that is the issue as we come to the beginning of Genesis 3 and this next instalment in our series in the early chapters of the Bible. And as we consider this, there are two really vital interrelated questions that are swirling around and we'll consider each in turn, although they do go together. The first of these is, is the Lord God worthy of our trust? Is the Lord God worthy of our trust? So you'll see the scene is set in the first half there of the first verse, Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Well, let's start with those first six words, that the Lord God had made. Obviously that's picking up what we've seen in Genesis one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you remember what we've seen from nothing? God created this stunning universe all around us. Remember the order, day and night, sea and sky, land and plants. And then God filled this creation with the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish and the birds. Such order, such variety, such diversity. It was all good. God kept going. The living creatures for the land and then us, humanity. And why did God do this? Why did God create us? And we were told to bless. So it was all very good. Genesis 1, what a powerful, good, generous God at work. Then Genesis 2, do you remember a second look at the creation? Much now about humanity. Do you remember God filled humanity with the breath of life? Then placed humanity in that stunning garden every tree pleasant to the eye and good for food. It was a beautiful, fruitful place. And then do you remember humanity given meaningful work to do with a wonderful goal 
to fill the earth, starting with that garden and then beyond. And to do this, humanity wouldn't be left alone. Do you remember man and woman together in the image of God? So what a wonderful creation we've seen. But really, more than that, if you like, or pointing towards a wonderful creator. Genesis 1 and 2 are just bursting with God's generosity, all flowing out from him. God knows what he's doing and he has very clear aims, which is to bring good, to bless those he has made. And there's yet more that over all of this, here is a God that we can know. Not just a God that we can know about, true things, if you like, but from afar, but a God who wants to be known personally in relationship. That is emphasized by the title we saw in Genesis 2. Do you remember? And it's here again at the beginning of chapter 3. The Lord God had made, capital letters for Lord. That is Yahweh. That is the personal name God gives to his people. So that by which they can enjoy meaningful relationship with him. And that was in there in the account as well. Do you remember creation building to the seventh day? the day of rest, the holy day, a day of blessing, that ultimately God would enjoy that rest with his creatures. And then last week, as part of the fabric of this creation, God instituted marriage between the man and the woman. Ultimately, again, to point towards this relationship between God and his people, the relationship for which we were made. So the question, is the creator God worthy of our trust? Well, the answer is itself after Genesis 1 and 2. It is crashingly obvious. There's no doubt at all. This creator God is completely and utterly worthy of our trust. But then here in Genesis 3, along comes the serpent. Later in the Bible, we're told plainly, this is Satan at work. At this point in Genesis 3, we're not told that much, except that he is crafty which highlights to us, the reader, pay close attention to what he says, which is what we'll do. So carrying on in that first verse, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, let's remind ourselves of what God did actually say. Chapter two, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in answer to the serpent's question, no, God did not actually say that they could not eat of any tree in the garden. In fact, God said almost the precise opposite. They should eat of every tree in the garden with only one exception. But of course, it wasn't as if the serpent was asking a genuine question, wanting to find out the answer. The serpent knew the answer already, and the serpent knew that the woman knew the answer already. So you think, well, why did he ask it? Well, this question is no neutral information-gathering kind of question. It is crafty and shrewd. Just like the barrister who knows the question that he or she is about to ask will be ruled out of order, but asks the question anyway, just to plant that thought in the jury's mind. Well, so with the serpent. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God's abundant provision is on display for all to see. 
the man and the woman given so much, so many good things to enjoy all they need and much, much more. And yet the serpent wants to focus on the one thing God doesn't allow. As if to say, God is not one who provides, but prohibits. Look, the serpent is saying, look at this God. It's a God who takes away a stingy celestial spoil sport. That's what the serpent at least wants to plant in the woman's mind. Notice how he backs this up. Notice what else the crafty serpent does in what we've heard already. The name he uses. It's striking after Genesis 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. The serpent says God. Well, that's a change from what we've just been seeing. And it's a significant change. Because to say the Lord God would be to remind the woman that this creator is a God who can be known and who wants to be known. So the serpent doesn't go there. Far better by comparison, simply to use a name that is impersonal, God. As if this God who is distant, far off, you can't really know him. Which of course is how our world chooses to see God today. So there's the serpent's opening gambit. How will the woman respond? Well, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now at first hearing, this may sound as if the woman is resisting the serpent. She's correcting him in some way, saying what is true. But maybe we are meant to see at least a couple of ominous signs. First, notice how the woman has followed the serpent in speaking of God as well, merely God without the Lord. And then notice as she then restates the instructions God gave, she adds, neither shall you touch it. But there's no mention of that back in Genesis 2. And so maybe what the woman says here is beginning to give us a window into how she's beginning to think about God. As one who says, don't do this, don't do that rather as primarily one who is overflowing with blessing. So is the Lord God to be trusted? Genesis 2 has shown us the clear answer to that question, but the serpent is craftily suggesting otherwise. Which way will the woman go? We have a second question to consider, very similar to the first one, but worth distinguishing. And the question is this, is the Lord God to be taken at his word? So again, we remember what we've seen so far. How did God create the heavens and the earth? By speaking, let there be, and there was. Numerous times, again and again, God spoke, and this stunning creation came into existence and was filled with such beauty and diversity. What a powerful word from God, effective, transforming for the good, for the very good. Then into Genesis 2, again, God speaks, do you remember what God said? He promised to the man a helper fit for him. And sure enough, what God said came to be, and the man very much liked what he saw. So then, asking that question, is this Lord God to be taken at his word? Obviously, yes. But the serpent therefore knows this is what he must undermine. Now, that line of attack was actually there in his opening question, remember, when he said, did God actually say? 
It wasn't quite an all-out attack, but yet still suggesting, implying maybe God's word isn't quite as clear, straightforward as you think. Maybe you shouldn't take it quite at face value. Maybe what God says doesn't have your best interests at heart. Well, we've seen the woman corrected the serpent initially, and she also mentions, doesn't she, the penalty for disobedience, which she had heard, and that was death. At which point now the gloves must come off. Well, they would if the serpent had any hands, but verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now no more subtlety. The crafty approach now is flat contradiction of what God had said. The issue is, will God judge? The world today, of course, wants to live in denial. Of course, you can live as you please. You can ignore God, what he says, because it just doesn't matter. It's not that serious. After all, think, people we know, like us, but they cut corners all the time and worse. But look, they get away with it. So just make the conclusion. God's word, well, yeah, it's a good idea. It's exaggeration. It won't happen. It's there to keep you in line, but if you break it, well, not so bad. You'll be fine. Well, that's what the serpent wants Eve to think, the woman. But as we read this and stand back for a moment, after all that we've seen, let's ask the question, will God judge? And the answer is obvious. Of course. God does what he says. What he says happens. And the woman knows that. So the minute she hears such a direct attack on what God had said, she should dismiss it immediately out of hand. But it seems before she even has the opportunity to say anything, the crafty serpent immediately follows up with, well, more craftiness. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the serpent says, if you eat the fruit, you won't die. But not only that, not only if you like, will the bad negative be avoided. More than that, it will be even better for you if you eat the fruit. Now, back in Genesis 2, we weren't told directly why humanity, the man, woman, were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It may be at this point, it wasn't actually for them to know. They were to trust that what God said was right. And after all, there were plenty of other trees to eat from. They weren't going to go hungry. There was going to be plenty as they did the work in the garden. When it came to that one tree, yes, they would have to trust the word of the God who they knew to be good, not to eat from it. But notice how the serpent claims to know God's intentions. And again, look at the portrayal we get in verse five. It is a restrictive God, isn't it? A God who, by implication, is holding back the good stuff from humanity. The juicy promise he presents, you could be in the know. You could... Avoid any worries about being left behind. Of course, doesn't really say what that means or what that would look like, but still presenting it as if something attractive for the woman. No consideration, is this good or is this right for humanity at this point? Surely if you were to ask that question, well, 
God would tell you whether it was good or right at this point. Well, the serpent goes even further. Even they might be able to be like God himself. So we might wonder, well, what does he mean then? What does the tree mean? The knowledge of good and evil. Well, one thing is very obvious. It can't mean to know the difference between good and evil. It's obvious. The woman is well aware there's a right response and a wrong response. Again, we could look on in the Bible to discover more about what this must mean. At the very least here in Genesis 2, the knowledge of good and evil, there is something more to know. Maybe some deeper insight seemingly into what really matters good and evil. But yet God says, no, not for you, at least not yet. So the scene is set. As we read, what will the woman do? And it does come down to really these bigger questions. Is the Lord God to be trusted? Is the Lord God to be taken at his word? The two obviously go together. We respond to God by responding to what he has said. They are two angles on the same issue. So although it's an interaction between the woman and the serpent, the issue isn't really ultimately how the woman responds to the serpent. It's how she will respond to the Lord God in this moment. And we're not talking here about an academic, intellectual, theological point. It's actually intensely personal. The Lord God created everything and humanity in his image with this capacity to choose how to respond to him. The question is, what will the woman do? What will humanity choose to do? Well, the rest of human history, even world history, depends on what happens next. And next we find the response of the man and the woman. First, the woman in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Well, that's the language of chapter two, verse nine, where actually there were loads of trees like that, plenty but the woman had fixated her attention on this one tree and she had fallen for it. She saw it and thought this one tree would make her wise. Now, wisdom is a biblical category. It's a quality to be pursued. At least godly wisdom is to be pursued. That is wanting to live rightly as God's people in God's world for people's good and for God's glory. Not to be pursued is to be wise in your own eyes, for your own sake, to be in the know for your own selfish gain. But this woman, it's hard to understand. That's the point. It doesn't make any sense. But she, it seems, has forgotten all that she knows of God and his goodness. Or maybe she chose to forget those things and she ate. She would not trust God. She would not listen or obey his word. She has decided she knows a better way, or at least so she thought, and ate of the fruit. Well, that's the woman. But what then of the man? End of verse six, and he ate. What is devastatingly brief. 
so few details. But maybe that's the point. There's no more for us to know. There was no resistance, it seems, from the man. No proposed alternative, even course of action. The simple thing is he too was offered the fruit and inexplicably ate it. We might ask at this point, well, what should the man have done at that point? Well, we are told that he was with his wife, presumably while the serpent was being crafty. So at the very least, the man should have intervened much sooner. But now that the woman had eaten, what should he have done at this point, and if like more positively? Well, at this point, we can't say definitively, although it will, again, become clearer maybe as we read on through the Bible. Maybe we only simply need to draw the obvious, fundamental conclusion. Had the man trusted God and taken God at his word, he simply would not have eaten of the tree. But he ate. And it's obvious now, having read Genesis to this point, the consequences of this surely will be utterly disastrous. And so it has proved to this day. We'll see more of that in next week's verses in Genesis 3. But let's just look at what we're told immediately in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you remember the end of chapter 2 last week? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now it seems their eyes were opened. In a sense, the serpent was right on this. But having eyes opened, just from what we're told, it's obvious it has not turned out well. What they have done has not delivered what they were hoping for. Now that they have chosen to turn against God and to oppose him, there's now so much to hide, but there's no going back. Showing us even in the first half verse, sin simply does not deliver. It won't satisfy. We think we've decided life will be better this way. We will be more in the know. We'll have had an experience that we couldn't have had if we listened to God. But it is simply not true. Sometimes this outcome will be immediately obvious to us. Sometimes the consequences of sin will be made clear over time. But either way, sin leads to shame. It doesn't deliver on what we thought it promised. So there's the response of the man and the woman. Next, we're going to see the response of Jesus. Now, Jesus as man, of course, was not in the Garden of Eden. And yet in the story of the Bible, many years later, he faced a very similar challenge, which is designed to bring to mind what happened here in Eden. We heard it in our second reading earlier, but in his gospel, Matthew tells us that after Jesus' baptism, so that's the beginning of his public ministry, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. We're told he was there fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine 40 days, 40 nights without food? And then as in Eden, the devil, the tempter, appeared with a crafty scheme. And notice again, it's to do with food. And the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves 
of bread. Again, it's crafty. The hunger, surely, for Jesus would have been all-consuming. And no doubt the serpent wants to trigger some thought processes in Jesus' mind. He was certainly able to produce that bread. And later in the gospel, we'll see he does that, but for others. So here, he could do it. What we think would be the harm of doing that, nobody would get hurt, surely. It would be okay. In fact, you could even put a spiritual reasoning on it. Give bread to Jesus to strengthen him and he'd be stronger, better equipped to go and serve others. But Jesus, how does he respond? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see what Jesus does? He trusts his heavenly father. He listens to what God has said. Jesus knew that ultimately life, true life, will always come from listening to God and obeying. As we know, the devil persisted. Two more temptations to follow in the wilderness. What happened? Well, each time Jesus kept trusting his father, kept living according to his father's word. And so by the end of that passage, by the end of those trials in the wilderness, now here we see how Jesus stands apart from all humanity, whether before or since. The contrast is plain with the first man, with Adam. Here is Jesus, the new man, the only man, the new Adam. It's a wonderful thing to see, but we might wonder, but how can that benefit us or the world? Well, it turns out Jesus' experience in the wilderness was really just the beginning for him. So then we move from the start of Jesus' earthly public ministry to towards its end. Towards the end of Matthew, Jesus, it's the evening before his death. He goes out with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. There Jesus spoke to his disciples to remind them and maybe himself of what God had said. He chose the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd. That is, Jesus knew he was the shepherd and God's word said that he must be struck. That is, even by God himself for the sake of others. But of course, knowing that it had been said ahead of time didn't then make it any easier for Jesus in experience as he goes through with it. And so we're told Jesus and disciples then went into a garden. Not Eden this time, but Gethsemane. We're told Jesus' soul was very sorrowful, even to death. Hard for us to even begin to comprehend the depths of that sorrow, the pain he was enduring, because Jesus knew what lay ahead. Now, no longer far off, but imminent. He must be struck by the Father. So again, the scene is set for us. Jesus has the choice to make an even more vital moment of world history, vital for the fulfillment of what God had said, his plans for creation, and therefore for our eternal destiny. And it is plain that in a very real sense, if there was any way Jesus could be spared what was due to happen, he would have taken it but it simply wasn't possible. Jesus says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
But he goes on, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. At that moment of greatest temptation, far beyond what we can really imagine or will ever have to experience, Jesus trusted his father and he obeyed his father's word. Now, if you like, without any shadow of doubt, we see a new Adam, a better Adam. And more than that, because of him and his trust and his obedience, there will be a new humanity. And the wonder of it is that it can even include those who have failed so miserably like us. That's Jesus' response. And so then finally, what then is to be our response? Well, first of all, it's too late because we've already made our response. It's not as if we come to this passage neutral, as if we are reading this to help us never make this mistake in the future. Genesis 3 shows us what we have already done. I hope we realize how it's been showing us that, that we've all acted as if we know what is in our best interests, as if we think we cannot trust such a creator that it'll be better for us if we ignore what God has said and instead go our own way. And what Genesis 3, as we spend time thinking about it and reading it and meditating on it, we begin to realise, well, how serious this is. For a start, how stupid it is after Genesis 1 and 2. What were we thinking? What are we thinking? But then we realize it's not only stupid, it's rebellious, personal, so arrogant what we've done. And we didn't just do it once, but again and again. It really is no wonder that this world, from the wars between nations, but also to the interactions on the personal level, well, it's such a mess. So really what matters at this point is not so much our response, but God's response. What will he do? And in Genesis 3, that's what he'll tell us, as we'll see next week. But we've cheated and we've gone and seen where that response will ultimately lead, which is to Jesus. That's how God responded to this shocking behavior. He sent his son, who showed us what it means to trust and to obey. But the result is hope. There is hope for this broken world, rebellious world, for us. You can be restored to a right relationship with the Lord God. We can again know him as God intended. For a little while longer, as God's people, we will still face temptations. The devil is still crafty, but he hasn't really got lots of new ways to tempt us. He'll try the same old tricks, that we can't trust God, that we can't be sure he's going to work in our best interests, that living according to his word is surely always the best way to go. To have that nagging thought, maybe God is holding good things back for me. Maybe I have seen a way that would work better for me. Well, giving in to sin made no sense in Genesis 3. 
But now all the more, this side of Jesus, it really should be unthinkable. We now know how to answer those crafty plans of the devil because we will keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus because in him we see all the more how good and generous God is. His almost shocking determination to bless those he has made how he really abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we can look at the track record of God's word, how he always keeps his promises. We know all the more that we can trust God. We can take him at his word. Even when in the midst of that temptation, we don't know all the answers, but we do know that. And so when the devil does play his tricks once again, We look again to Jesus. He led the way. We remember how he responded. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we do so praise you that you are a God who can be trusted and that you are always true to your word. We praise you that when we foolishly and rebelliously turned against you. You responded to put right what had gone so wrong. We are amazed by your son who so wonderfully trusted you and lived according to your word, facing the greatest temptation and did it all for our sake. So now we ask that as your people, as those who know the wonder of your loving generosity, would we trust you and live according to your word, for your glory. Amen. We've got plenty of questions rolling in, so let's crack on. Uh, A couple of questions that relate to um, uh, previous weeks. Somebody's asking how literally we are to take the Bible's creation account. If we go back and have a listen to the talks over the last couple of weeks, I did one on Genesis 1 where I talked about this a little bit. If you didn't think that, if you did hear that already and you didn't think that was satisfactory, come and talk to me afterwards or an Aaron. Um, somebody was also asking about um, why we're not told about Eve's name until after the fall happens. We'll get to that um, in, uh, in the next uh, passage. Are you doing that one or is it yeah. William? There you go. I've created work for an Aaron. He will tell you all about that in, uh, in the upcoming I passages. tried not to say Eve today, but did you notice I did it once, but I tried to say the woman because that's the order of the passage. But there we go. Eve comes next week. There you go. You'll get your answer. Um, somebody asking about uh, the last couple of weeks' talks about uh, marriage from Genesis chapter 2. In many cultures across the world, people have thought that marriage should be between one man and one woman, and they didn't particularly get that from the Bible. So um, how come? Is that just an inbuilt human instinct or, or what? Yes, in the sense that there is much about creation that is reality. That is the way that it is, male and female, marriage as well. And so God's word gives us sharp clarity and lots more about why those things are the way that they are. But it shouldn't surprise us that around the world, as people have looked on the world and seen how the world is, they have grasped things that are true and lived in measure according to them. Um, Somebody also asking about marriage from last couple of weeks 
how does it fit into the idea that we're church family? I'm not quite sure what's in the questions mind, but that's exactly what they've said. How does marriage and family fit into the idea that we're church family? So we thought a little bit last week how it's pointing ultimately to Christ and the church. So obviously marriage was instituted before the fall. We don't know whether at that point everyone would have got married and experienced that particular relationship. But in terms of the love to which it points and the relationship supremely is between Christ and his people. But then the language in the New Testament is largely used that this sort of love should then be on show in the church amongst God's people. So as we know God's love to us, so we love God in return, but also so we love one another. And we don't sometimes think about that. We understand a lot of the time that marriage is pointed to Christ and the church, but then so to speak, only or mainly apply it simply then to how a married couple should love each other, which they certainly should. But the New Testament, I think, takes it a bit broader than that, that this was showing how the relationship should be fulfilled with Christ and the church, and therefore in the church. And so therefore, much of what this is speaking about will be fulfilled or should be fulfilled in church relationships. Thank you. Um, Coming to today's uh, passage, a couple more questions about how literally we should take what's been written, but relating more specifically to this uh, passage. A couple of people are asking about the snake, and, you know, is, is, is this a literal talking snake? Is it figurative in some kind of a way? What was, what was going on? How could it be a bad snake? Um, anything to say about the snake? <laughs> <laughs> well, we take it on the value, you know, that it's given. So, yes. I mean, elsewhere in the Bible, there is a talking donkey, and uh, which was done very recently in Bridge on Friday night, I think, with the youth. And uh, God can work in particular and exceptional ways. So therefore, there is no reason, I think, for us to come with a doubting disposition to disbelieving the way that it is presented for us in Scripture. Yeah. And is that true for the, for the passage as a whole, do you think? Is it, is, are we supposed to take everything literally about this, or is it some kind of representation of a bigger issue about humanity. Um, there's another question which is, which is similar to that, which is, um, is, is this entirely about um, Adam and Eve or is it in some way kind of representing humanity as a whole? Again, it's not that the Bible can't speak figuratively, but usually when that happens, we can see that on its own terms. And that's not to say there's no figurative elements here at the beginning of Genesis. But again, we look to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, clearly took Adam for example, the man as a literal, physical, individual human being, and also that we fell, that humanity fell, sinned in Adam, that it all flows down from him. So therefore, what I'm doing by saying that is sometimes people say when it's figurative language that you know, humanity some way evolved, and this is a picture of how they are now in a state that isn't perfect. But I don't think the New Testament will let us do that. It says Adam existed as an individual from whom his fall into sin has had these disastrous consequences. But then the parallel, of course, is Jesus was a not a figurative person in the sense he was a literal, real person. And it's in him that we have life and hope. Um, A couple of people are um, asking about one detail of the passage, which is, which is a bit tricky. This is a very fair question that a couple of people have got. But the serpent says in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, 
um, that on the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And he says, on the day that you eat of it. But then that doesn't happen. So what's the deal there? It sounds like God hasn't been true to what he said after all. I think it was a God speaking, verse 17, not the serpent. But yes, God did say that on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, the question therefore is, well, what does die mean? And notice in verse nine, we were told there were loads of trees with pleasant to the sight and good for food. So therefore there was plenty of trees in the garden to sustain what we might call physical life. But then distinct from that, there was a tree of life, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which at least asks the question, is the life of the tree of life maybe to be distinguished from the physical life that is produced by the other trees? Um, and maybe as we look next week, the Bible wants us to really think, what does death mean? Yes, it of course means physical death, and physical death may be a pointer to this greater death, but maybe on the day that they ate of it, in the ultimate sense, they did die, which we'll think about next week. Mm -hmm. um, is the implication in the Bible that we're... Uh, sorry, no, that, was the, that wasn't the... Sorry, I do apologise, I've deleted the uh, wrong question. We've already done this one. The question that I was going to ask was... Um, Somebody had asked, uh, um, I've forgotten what it was. I'll give you a different one. Somebody, <laughs> I'm going to blame the interface here, but it is actually 100% my fault. Um, somebody asked a question about, um, you were talking about trusting God, and the, the question came in sort of early on in the talk, so I think you did answer it, but you give you a chance to kind of reiterate it again. What does it mean uh, to trust God here, what do you mean by trusting God? I think you were saying that it's more of a general principle rather than a specific thing. That's right. Do we think that God is someone who can be trusted? And who do we trust? We trust someone who is consistent, but also trust in the positive sense that we think they are for us and that they will work for our good. So that's the context, isn't it? Because there is, in the midst of all this blessing and fruitfulness. There is that prohibition. There is something that they shouldn't do. And so in the midst of that, will you trust God that even if at that point, let's just say the woman can't quite understand why it's there, but she trusts God is always working for my good. Therefore, it must be for my good. I trust him in that way, which clearly has implications for us today. There's much in life that we don't quite understand. We'll have questions about the Bible, things we're not quite sure, even about God and Christian things. But the big question is, from what we do know, and we know so much more in the Lord Jesus, have we seen, which we should have seen if we weren't sinners, this is a wonderful God who I can trust, and therefore I will trust him and live according to his word. In the same way that Jesus in the garden had to trust that it was the best thing for him to go through with that even though his should we say appetites or human desires were crying out for him to go the other way but he trusted his father thank you Darren. i think that's probably a good note for us to end on